This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Essays of Francis Bacon Essay 41 Of Usury Many have made witty invectives against usury. They say that it is a pity the devil should have God's part, which is the tithe. That the usurer is the greatest Sabbath-breaker, because his plough goeth every Sunday. That the usurer is the drone, that Virgil speaketh of. Ignavum fucos pecus a precepibus arsent that the usurer breaketh the first law that was made for mankind after the fall, which was insudore vultus tui comedes panem tuum, not insudore vultus alieni, that usurers should have orange tawny bonnets because they do judaize, that it is against nature for money to beget money, and the like. I say this only, that usury is a concessum propter duritium cordis. For since there must be borrowing and lending, and men are so hard of heart as they will not lend freely, usury must be permitted. Some others have made suspicious and cunning propositions of banks, discovery of men's estates, and other inventions. But few have spoken of usury usefully. It is good to set before us the incommodities and commodities of usury, that the good may be either weighed out or called out, and warily to provide that while we make forth to that which is better, we meet not with that which is worse. The discommodities of usury are, first, that it makes fewer merchants, for were it not for this lazy trade of usury, money would not be still, but would in great part be employed upon merchandising, which is the vena porta of wealth in a state. The second, that it makes poor merchants. For as a farmer cannot husband his ground so well if he sit at a great rent, so the merchant cannot drive his trade so well if he sit at great usury. The third is incident to the other two, and that is the decay of customs of kings or states, which ebb or flow with merchandising. The fourth, that it bringeth the treasure of a realm or state into a few hands. For the usurer being at certainties, and others at uncertainties, at the end of the game, most of the money will be in the box, and ever a state flourisheth, when wealth is more equally spread. The fifth, that it beats down the price of land. For the employment of money is chiefly either merchandising or purchasing, and usury waylays both. The sixth, that it doth dull and damp all industries, improvements, and new inventions, wherein money would be stirring if it were not for this slug. The last, that it is the canker and ruin of many men's estates, which, in process of time, breeds a public poverty. On the other side, the commodities of usury are, first, that howsoever usury in some respects hindereth merchandising, yet in some other it advanceth it. For it is certain that the greatest part of trade is driven by young merchants upon borrowing at interest, 
so as if the usurer either call in or keep back his money there will ensue presently a great stand of trade the second is that were it not for this easy borrowing upon interest men's necessities would draw upon them a most sudden undoing in that they would be forced to sell their means be it lands or goods far underfoot and so whereas usury doth but gnaw upon them bad markets would swallow them quite up as for mortgaging or pawning it will little mend the matter for either men will not take pawns without use or if they do they will look precisely for the forfeiture i remember a cruel moneyed man in the country that would say the devil take this usury it keeps us from forfeitures of mortgages and bonds the third and last is that it is a vanity to conceive that there would be ordinary borrowing without profit and it is impossible to conceive the number of inconveniences that will ensue if borrowing be cramped therefore to speak of the abolishing of usury is idle all states have ever had it in one kind or rate or other so as that opinion must be sent to utopia to speak now of the reformation and reglement of usury how the discommodities of it may be best avoided and the commodities retained it appears by the balance of commodities and discommodities of usury two things are to be reconciled the one that the tooth of usury be grinded that it bite not too much the other that there be left open a means to invite moneyed men to lend to the merchants for the continuing and quickening of trade this cannot be done except you introduce two several sorts of usury a less and a greater for if you reduce usury to one low rate it will ease the common borrower but the merchant will be to seek for money and it is to be noted that the trade of merchandise being the most lucrative may bear usury at a good rate other contracts not so to serve both intentions the way would be briefly thus that there be two rates of usury the one free and general for all the other under license only to certain persons and in certain places of merchandising first therefore let usury in general be reduced to five in the hundred and let that rate be proclaimed to be free and current and let the state shut itself out to take any penalty for the same this will preserve borrowing from any general stop or dryness this will ease infinite borrowers in the country this will in good part raise the price of land because land purchased at sixteen years purchase will yield six in the hundred and somewhat more whereas this rate of interest yields but five this by like reason will encourage and edge industrious and profitable improvements because many will rather venture in that kind than take five in the hundred especially having been used to greater profit secondly let there be certain persons licensed to lend to known merchants upon usury at a higher rate and let it be with the cautions following let the rate be even with the merchant himself somewhat more easy than that he used formerly to pay for by that means all borrowers shall have some ease by this reformation be he merchant or whosoever let it be no bank or common stock but every man be master of his own money not that i altogether mislike banks 
but they will hardly be brooked in regard of certain suspicions. Let the state be answered some small matter for the license, and the rest left to the lender. For if the abatement be but small, it will no whit discourage the lender. For he, for example, that took before ten or nine in the hundred, will sooner descend to eight in the hundred than give over his trade of usury, and go from certain gains to gains of hazard. Let these licensed lenders be in the number indefinite but restrained to certain principal cities and towns of merchandising. For then they will be hardly able to color other men's monies in the country. So as the license of nine will not suck away the current rate of five. For no man will send his monies far off, nor put them into unknown hands. If it be objected, that this doth in a sort authorize usury, which before was in some places but permissive, the answer is, that it is better to mitigate usury by declaration than to suffer it to rage by connivance. Essay 42 Of Youth and Age A man that is young in years may be old in hours if he have lost no time, but that happeneth rarely. Generally, youth is like the first cogitations, not so wise as the second. For there is a youth in thoughts as well as in ages, and yet the invention of young men is more lively than that of old, and imaginations stream into their minds better, and, as it were, more divinely. Natures that have much heat, and great and violent desires and perturbations, are not ripe for action, till they have passed the meridian of their years, as it was with Julius Caesar and Septimius Severus, of the latter of whom it is said, Juventutum agit erroribus imo ferroribus plenum. And yet he was the ablest emperor almost of all the list. But reposed natures may do well in youth, as it is seen in Augustus Caesar, Cosmus Duke of Florence, Gaston de Foix, and others. On the other side, heat and vivacity in age is an excellent composition for business. Young men are fitter to invent than to judge, fitter for execution than for counsel, and fitter for new projects than for settled business. For the experience of age, in things that fall within the compass of it, directeth them, but in new things abuseth them. The errors of young men are the ruin of business, but the errors of aged men amount but to this, that more might have been done or sooner. Young men, in the conduct and manage of actions, embrace more than they can hold, stir more than they can quiet, fly to the end without consideration of the means and degrees, pursue some few principles, which they have chanced upon absurdly, care not to innovate, which draws unknown inconveniences, use extreme remedies at first, and, that which doubleth all errors, will not acknowledge or retract them, like an unready horse that will neither stop nor turn. Men of age object too much, consult too long, adventure too little, repent too soon, and seldom drive business home to the full period, but content themselves with a mediocrity of success. Certainly it is good to compound employments of both, for that will be good for the present, 
because the virtues of either age may correct the defects of both, and good for succession that young men may be learners while men in age are actors, and lastly, good for extern accidents, because authority followeth old men, and favor and popularity youth. But for the moral part, perhaps youth will have the preeminence as age hath for the politic. A certain rabbin, upon the text, Your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, inferreth that young men are admitted nearer to God than old, because vision is a clearer revelation than a dream. And certainly, the more a man drinketh of the world, the more it intoxicateth, and age doth prefer rather in the powers of understanding than in the virtues of the will and affections. There be some have an over-early ripeness in their years, which fadeth betimes. These are, first, such as have brittle wits, the edge whereof is soon turned. Such as was Hermogenes, the rhetorician, whose books are exceeding subtle, who afterwards waxed stupid. A second sort is of those that have some natural dispositions which have better grace in youth than in age such as is a fluent and luxuriant speech, which becomes youth well, but not age. So Tully saith of Hortensius, Idem manabat, neque idem desabat. The third is of such, as take too high a strain at the first, and are magnanimous more than tract of years can uphold, as was Scipio Africanus, of whom Livy saith in effect, Ultima, Primus Sedabant. Essay 43 Of Beauty Virtue is like a rich stone, best plain set, and surely virtue is best in a body that is comely, though not of delicate features, and that hath rather dignity of presence than beauty of aspect. Neither is it almost seen that very beautiful persons are otherwise of great virtue, as if nature were rather busy not to err than in labor to produce excellency. And therefore they prove accomplished, but not of great spirit, and study rather behavior than virtue. But this holds not always. For Augustus Caesar, Titus Vespasianus, Philip le Bel of France, Edward the Fourth of England, Alcibiades of Athens, Ismael, the Safi of Persia, were all high and great spirits, and yet the most beautiful men of their times. In beauty, that of favor is more than that of color, and that of decent and gracious motion more than that of favor. That is the best part of beauty, which a picture cannot express, no, nor the first sight of the life. There is no excellent beauty that hath not some strangeness in the proportion. A man cannot tell whether Apelles or Albert Durer were the more trifler, whereof the one would make a personage by geometrical proportions, the other by taking the best parts out of diverse faces to make an excellent. Such personages, I think, would please nobody but the painter that made them. Not but I think a painter may make a better face than ever was, but he must do it by a kind of felicity, as a musician that maketh an excellent air in music, and not by rule. 
A man shall see faces, that if you examine them part by part, you shall find never a good, and yet altogether do well. If it be true that the principal part of beauty is in decent motion, certainly it is no marvel, though persons in years seem many times more amiable. Pulchrorum autumnus pulcher. For no youth can be comely but by pardon, and considering the youth as to make up the comeliness. Beauty is as summer fruits, which are easy to corrupt, and cannot last. And for the most part, it makes a dissolute youth, and an age a little out of countenance. But yet, certainly again, if it light well, it maketh virtue shine, and vices blush. Essay 44 of deformity. Deformed persons are commonly even with nature, for as nature hath done ill by them, so do they by nature, being for the most part, as the scripture saith, void of natural affection, and so they have their revenge of nature. Certainly there is a consent between the body and the mind, and where nature erreth in the one, she ventureth in the other ubi peccat in uno, periclititur in altero. But because there is in man an election touching the frame of his mind, and a necessity in the frame of his body, the stars of natural inclination are sometimes obscured by the sun of discipline and virtue. Therefore it is good to consider of deformity not as a sign which is more deceivable, but as a cause which seldom faileth of the effect. Whosoever hath anything fixed in his person that doth induce contempt, hath also a perpetual spur in himself to rescue and deliver himself from scorn. Therefore, all deformed persons are extreme bold. First, as in their own defense, as being exposed to scorn. But in process of time, by a general habit. Also, it stirreth in them industry, and especially of this kind, to watch and observe the weakness of others, that they may have somewhat to repay. Again, in their superiors, it quencheth jealousy towards them, as persons that they think they may at pleasure despise. And it layeth their competitors and emulators asleep, as never believing they should be in possibility of advancement, till they see them in possession. So that upon the matter in a great wit, deformity is an advantage to rising. Kings in ancient times, and at this present in some countries, were wont to put great trust in eunuchs. Because they that are envious towards all are more obnoxious and officious towards one. But yet their trust towards them hath rather been as to good spiels and good whisperers than good magistrates and officers. And much like is the reason of deformed persons. Still the ground is, they will, if they be of free spirit, seek to free themselves from scorn, which must be either by virtue or malice. And therefore let it not be marveled if sometimes they prove excellent persons, as was Agesilius, Zanger the son of Solomon, Aesop, Gasca, President of Peru and Socrates may go likewise amongst them, with others. Essay 45 Of Building 
Houses are built to live in and not to look on. Therefore, let use be preferred before uniformity, except where both may be had. Leave the goodly fabrics of houses, for beauty only, to the enchanted palaces of the poets, who build them with small cost. He that builds a fair house upon an ill seat committeth himself to prison. Neither do I reckon it an ill seat only where the air is unwholesome, but likewise where the air is unequal. As you shall see, many fine seats set upon a nap of ground environed with higher hills round about it, whereby the heat of the sun is pent in, and the wind gathereth as in troughs, so as you shall have, and that suddenly, as great diversity of heat and cold, as if you dwelt in several places. Neither is it ill air only that maketh an ill seat, but ill ways, ill markets, and if you will consult with Momus, ill neighbors. I speak not of many more, want of water, want of wood, shade, and shelter, many of fruitfulness and mixture of grounds of several natures, want of prospect, want of level grounds, want of places at some near distance for sports or hunting, hawking, and races, too near the sea, too remote, having the commodity of navigable rivers, or the discommodity of their overflowing, too far off from great cities, which may hinder business, or too near them, which lurcheth all provisions, and maketh everything dear, where a man hath a great living laid together, and where he is scanted, all of which, as it is impossible perhaps to find together, so it is good to know them, and think of them, that a man may take as many as he can. And if he have several dwellings, that he sort them, so that what he wanteth in the one, he may find in the other. Lucullus answered Pompey well, who, when he saw his stately galleries and rooms so large and lightsome, in one of his houses, said, Surely an excellent place for summer. But how do you in the winter? Lucullus answered, Why, do you not think me as wise as some fowl are, that ever change their abode towards the winter? To pass from the seat to the house itself, we will do as Cicero doth in the orator's art, who writes books de oratori, and a book he entitles orator, whereof the former delivers the precepts of the art, and the latter the perfection. We will therefore describe a princely palace, making a brief model thereof, for it is strange to see now in Europe such huge buildings as the Vatican and Escurial, and some others be, and yet scarce a very fair room in them. First, therefore, I say you cannot have a perfect palace, except you have two several sides, a side for the banquet, as it is spoken of in the book of Hester, and a side for the household, the one for feasts and triumphs, and the other for dwelling. I understand both these sides to be not only returns, but parts of the front, and to be uniform without, though severally partitioned within, and to be on both sides of a great and stately tower, in the midst of the front, that, as it were, joineth them together on either hand. I would have on the side of the banquet in front one goodly room above stairs, of some forty foot high and under it a room for a dressing, or preparing place, at times of triumphs. On the other side, which is the household side, I wish it was divided at the first into a hall and a chapel, with a partition between. 
both of good state and bigness, and those not to go all the length, but to have at the further end a winter and a summer parlor, both fair. And under these rooms a fair and large cellar, sunk underground, and likewise some privy kitchens, with butteries and pantries and the like. As for the tower, I would have it two stories of eighteen foot high apiece, above the two wings, and a goodly leads upon the top railed with statuas interposed, and the same tower to be divided into rooms as shall be thought fit. The stairs likewise to the upper rooms, let them be upon a fair open newel, and finely railed in, with images of wood cast into a brass color, and a very fair landing place at the top. But this to be, if you do not point any of the lower rooms for a dining place of servants, for otherwise you shall have the servants' dinner after your own, for the steam of it will come up as in a tunnel, and so much for the front. Only I understand the height of the first stairs to be sixteen foot, which is the height of the lower room. Beyond this front is there to be a fair court, but three sides of it of a far lower building than the front and in all the four corners of that court fair staircases cast into turrets on the outside and not within the row of buildings themselves but those towers are not to be of the height of the front but rather proportionable to the lower building let the court not be paved for that striketh up a great heat in summer and much cold in winter but only some side alleys with a cross and the quarters to graze being kept shorn but not too near shorn the row of return on the banquet side, let it be all stately galleries, in which galleries let there be three or five fine cupolas in the length of it, placed at equal distance, and fine colored windows of several works. On the household side, chambers of presence and ordinary entertainments with some bedchambers, and let all three sides be a double house without thorough lights on the sides, that you may have rooms from the sun both for forenoon and afternoon cast it also that you may have rooms both for summer and winter shady for summer and warm for winter you shall have sometimes fair houses so full of glass that one cannot tell where to become to be out of the sun or cold for in bowed windows i hold them of good use and cities indeed upright do better in respect of the uniformity towards the street for they be pretty retiring places for conference. And besides, they keep both the wind and sun off. For that which would strike almost through the room doth scarce pass the window. But let them be but few, four in the court, on the sides only. Beyond this court, let there be an inward court of the same square and height, which is to be environed with the garden on all sides, and in the inside cloistered on all sides upon decent and beautiful arches as high as the first story. On the underside, towards the garden, let it be turned to a grotto or a place of shade or estivation, and only have opening and windows towards the garden, and be level upon the floor, no whit sunken underground, to avoid all dampishness and let there be a fountain or some fair work of statuas in the midst of this court and to be paved as the other court was these buildings to be for privy lodgings on both sides and the end for privy galleries whereof you must foresee that one of them be for an infirmary 
if the prince or any special person should be sick, with chambers, bedchamber, antecamera, and recamera joining to it. This upon the second story. Upon the ground story, a fair gallery open upon pillars, and upon the third story likewise, an open gallery upon pillars, to take the prospect and freshness of the garden. At both corners of the further side, by way of return, let there be two delicate or rich cabinets, daintily paved, richly hanged, glazed with crystalline glass, and a rich cupola in the midst, and all the other elegancy that may be thought upon. In the upper gallery, too, I wish that there may be, if the place will yield it, some fountains running in diverse places from the wall, with some fine avoidances and thus much for the model of the palace, save that you must have, before you come to the front, three courts, a green court plain with a wall about it, a second court of the same, but more garnished, with little turrets, or rather embellishments, upon the wall, and a third court to make a square with the front, but not to be built, nor yet enclosed with a naked wall, but enclosed with terraces, leaded aloft, and fairly garnished on the three sides, and cloistered on the inside with pillars, and not with arches below. As for offices, let them stand at distance, with some low galleries, to pass from them to the palace itself. End of The Essays of Francis Bacon Essays 41, 42, 43, 44, and 45.